0: You're tuned to WFHB. Volunteer-powered, listener-supported.
1: Community Radio for South Central Indiana. Good afternoon. Reporting remotely for WFHB, this is Benedict Jones.
0: And I'm Noel Heresky-Schneider. This is the WFHB Local News for Thursday, September 7th, 2021.
1: Later in the program, the City of Bloomington will host the Black History 101 Mobile Museum from 9 a.m. to noon on September 11th at City Hall. We spoke with James Sanders, Chair of the City of Bloomington, Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. Commission. More coming up in today's feature report.
0: Also coming up in the next half hour, President of IU Health, Brian Shockney, says that the hospital system has postponed non-urgent surgeries due to the rising numbers of patients with COVID-19. More in the top half of tonight's program. But first, your daily headlines.
1: At the September 3rd COVID-19 press conference, Mayor John Hamilton cautioned residents about the increasing COVID-19 rates. The state daily death rate in most of July uh, in most of July, you could count how many people died in our state on one hand uh, every day, five or fewer. And now you need both hands and both feet to count the average daily loss, uh, 20 people. Those are those are people with names and families, uh, and that fourfold increase is a, is a dramatic indicator of the stakes involved. Health Administrator Penny Cottle shared that Monroe County is currently in the yellow advisory category for COVID-19 cases. However, the trajectory is moving towards the orange category.
2: Welcome to fall. I wish I could say that we were welcoming falling infection rates, but we're not. Uh, uh, We do remain in the yellow advisory, uh, 1.5, with uh, uh, 220 cases per 100,000 and a weekly positivity rate of 4.34 percent. I do want to note, however, if you look at today's positivity rate, it is 5.4 percent. And if that were our weekly rate, we would not be in yellow. We would be in orange. So our numbers do continue to rise.
1: According to the Indiana County COVID-19 guidelines, an orange status means that there is medium to high community spread. It also means more precautions should be put into place. For example, it is recommended that the size of gatherings be limited and common places in workspaces be limited. Monroe County Commissioner's President Julie Thomas reminded residents that the county is offering financial assistance for those who need help with utilities and rent. Residents of Monroe County can contact their township trustee for more information. She also encouraged members of the community to help each other.
2: Um, We know that COVID-19 has been exhausting for all of us, grief, anxiety, work, stress. What can we do? Well, we appreciate the excellent care offered by our community's health professionals, the essential workers who keep our economy going, the health department and health board for protecting us and, and looking forward and looking ahead and being thoughtful about that. But we can do something. We can get vaccinated. We can encourage others to do so as well. We can wear a mask when we're out in public uh, to protect those who cannot get a vaccine and to protect ourselves. And a big thank you to those who did get the vaccine and have been vaccinated and those who are wearing their masks. You are making a difference. It can be difficult to be positive in these uncertain times, but please be respectful and be kind because that too can make a difference.
1: President of IU Health Brian Shockney shared that the hospital is postponing non-urgent surgeries due to the rising numbers of patients with COVID-19. He explained that the number of patients at the hospital are predominantly non-vaccinated individuals.
3: Uh, our IU Health Center region COVID inpatient numbers are following the, an upward trend, putting added stress on our resources and on our team members. And as demonstrated in this graphic, this influx of, influx of COVID inpatients is predominantly unvaccinated, as only 10% of our COVID inpatients have been vaccinated. And of the vaccinated individuals who did need to be hospitalized for COVID, none of them are in our ICUs or on a ventilator. This demonstrates the power of the
1: vaccine. The resounding message at the press conference was that individuals should get vaccinated because it is helping and it will help even more if everyone gets the vaccine. The next press conference will be held on September 11th.
0: The Ellisville Plan Commission discussed an amended Governor Park Landscape Plan, at the September 2nd meeting, Director Kevin Toledy presented an amended plan with less shrubbery and less sidewalks. Petitioner Hayden Lockhart said aspects of the project have cost more than expected, resulting in changes into landscaping.
3: The first problem was we were running into so many huge cost increases. So when we came before the council, was it in was it February or March of last year? Um, it, it was approximately you know, close to 18 months ago. Um, and you know we had a, a great plan put together. Um, we had submitted everything and we had a fixed budget. Um, and that fixed budget was set by two different things. One of them is the tax credit authority you know, in, in Indiana. So as we started to go through it, we had a whole bunch of different things that happened to us. And one of those things was our lumber costs went from 800,000 to 1.5 million. Roofing has gone from 260 up to 514. Um, And these are all costs that we just, we had no way to be able to contain and fix. So we've kind of gone through our contingency.
0: Commissioner Don Calvert did not mind the missing sidewalk. He said as long as the sidewalk leads to State Road 46, the plan is fine.
4: The sidewalk around the north and the east, uh, I I would agree, would be kind of sketchy (laughs) in the first place. As long as people can come out of the building and walk along a sidewalk, to get through the development and, and back up to 46, I'm fine with that.
0: Commissioner Sandra Hash, motion to approve the amendment with conditions. Commissioners approve the motion 5-0. to zero.
1: Monroe County commissioners announced their intent to establish a voting precinct and district review committee. County Attorney Jeffrey Cockrell said that the resolution at the September 1st meeting was more of an announcement. He said the goal was to encourage residents to apply now, so the committee could be ready to roll once Monroe County gets information from the state really, the intent of this resolution is to let people know we're going to, that you guys are working on putting together a a formal committee to look at the precincting and and district boundaries for the county. Um, once that information is available from the state, uh, we received information from the state that our normal uh, time frame is six months and it'll be likely closer to six weeks this year. So we really want to get a lot of the uh, groundwork done prior to that. Commissioner Julie Thomas clarified that interested residents can apply for the committee online. You can find the board and commission application at co.monroe.in.us boards.
0: Up next, we present some recent prison-related news and announcements from the producers of KiteLine, our public affairs program devoted to prison issues around the Midwest and beyond. Kite Line airs each Friday at 5.30 p.m. on the WFHB Community Radio. It's also available online at WFHB.org or wherever you listen to podcasts.
5: On August 6th, two detainees escaped from Leon County Jail in Texas, while participating in a work program. Both prisoners have been recaptured.
3: On the afternoon of August 7, two detainees escaped the Raymond Work Center in Mississippi. One detainee was recaptured shortly after, but as of August 28, 2021, the other prisoner has yet to be captured and allegedly stole a pickup truck from a bus facility.
5: Throughout the afternoon and evening of August 7th, several prisoners detained at the Cuyahoga County Juvenile Detention Center in Cleveland, Ohio, refused to return to their cells after being briefly let out after a sustained confinement due to staff shortages. During the disturbance, several prisoners committed, quote, acts of vandalism, according to a court system. The vandalism began when some residents failed to follow staff instructions. The juveniles escalated the incident by damaging ceiling tiles, a soap dispensary, windows, a TV, and the fire sprinkler system. According to contradicting incident reports from the detention center, two separate disturbances occurred at the same time but on different housing units. According to WVIZ IdeaStream, Prisoners were, quote, upset about being held in their rooms for extended periods and not being allowed to make phone calls, end quote. Other incident reports on the evening suggest windows were broken and chairs and furniture were thrown. According to the Sheriff's Department, no force was used, but those involved in the disturbance were handcuffed and, quote, confined, end quote. According to Cleveland.com, Quote, Cuyahoga County Spokeswoman Mary Louise Madigan said, The three-hour riot caused an estimated $20,000 in damages, not including the cost of cleaning or replacing the carpet. End quote.
3: On August 10, an uprising occurred at the Lynchburg Adult Detention Center in Lynchburg, Virginia. According to WFXR Fox News, at around 6 p.m. that evening, 66 prisoners detained in the maximum security housing units barricaded themselves in the unit and took over for over 14 hours. Lynchburg Police Chief Ryan Zuidima said the disturbance ended at around 8 a.m. the next morning and that no force was used and no injuries were reported. There was property damage, such as destruction of camera systems and cell windows, but the extent of the damage wasn't reported. WFXR Fox News interviewed former guards saying that the reason for the revolt could be due to outdated systems and lack of maintenance, such as mold, in the facility, as well as staff shortages that have led to prolonged lockdowns. Vishon Fuller, who is detained at the jail, said, We haven't been outside in like two weeks. There are 14 cells that don't work properly with the toilets, and in the other cells, most of the water doesn't work in the room. Quote. On August 11th, a disturbance occurred at Presidio County Jail in Marfa, Texas. According to CBS 7 News, several detainees refused to comply with officers and covered their windows. The U.S. Marshals were called in to, quote, de-escalate, end quote, and no further information has been provided about the cause of the event or how the U.S. Marshals responded.
5: On Friday, August 20th, several disturbances occurred at Philadelphia Industrial Correctional Center in Pennsylvania. According to a Philadelphia Inquirer article about a protest on August 25th, organized by former and current guards of the Philadelphia Department of Prisons about unsafe working conditions, David Robinson, the president of the union representing correctional officers, mentioned a quote riot, end quote, at the facility on the 20th. According to Robinson, several prisoners, quote, reached, end quote, their cells, and after a few hundred other prisoners became involved, he said, quote, several similar disturbances occurred in the jail over the weekend, end quote. The Inquirer also reported on internal documents that said a guard was attacked in one jail and a fire was set in another, but the details of these events and the specific facilities that the events were located in were not disclosed. In an Instagram video circulated on August 20th that is allegedly of a prisoner inside the facility during the disturbances, in which he discusses the poor conditions of the jail since the beginning of the pandemic.
3: On the early evening of Sunday, August 22nd, a disturbance occurred at Aiken County Detention Center in Aiken, South Carolina. According to ABC News Channel 6, the disturbance occurred when one detainee couldn't comply with orders, and then, in a statement by the Aiken County Sheriff's Office, quote, the entire pod became one big disturbance, end quote. About 50 prisoners were involved. The cause of the disturbance is unknown, and no injuries have been reported.
5: A maximum security unit at the Hudson County Correctional Facility in New Jersey went on a 72-hour quarantine lockdown on Monday, August 23rd, after seven detainees had COVID-19 symptoms. According to some sources in the Jersey Journal, several detainees began refusing food and medicine on Monday, though the county spokesperson for the facility did not confirm this. The Jersey Journal reported that by Thursday the 26th, the lockdown was ongoing and in-person visits were canceled and that the COVID-19 tests had yet to come back in which detainees then tried to block guards from coming on the unit by pouring soap and water on the floors and trying to close the doors with bedsheets. Pepper spray was deployed. The county spokesperson said that no injuries were reported and that the unit remained on lockdown.
1: Now it's time for your feature report. The city of Bloomington will host the Black History 101 Mobile Museum from 9 a.m. to noon on September 11th at City Hall. The museum will feature a collection of 7,000 artifacts of black memorabilia dating from the transatlantic slave trade era to hip hop culture. This collection was founded and curated by Dr. Khalid El-Hakim, a keynote speaker at the city's Martin Luther King Jr. Day celebration. WFHB News spoke with James Sanders, chair of the City of Bloomington Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. Commission. Sanders describes the exhibit as jarring, but he still believes it is important for our community to acknowledge this difficult history. We turn to WFHB's Cade Young and Noel Herhusky-Schneider for that interview.
4: James Sanders, Chair of the City of Bloomington, Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. Commission. Welcome to the WFHB Local News.
6: Hello. Thank you all for having me.
4: So, so first off, the City of Bloomington will host the Black History 101 Mobile Museum on September 11th from 9 a.m. to noon at City Hall. To kick things off, would you just walk me through what is the Black History 101 Mobile Museum?
6: Black History 101 Mobile Museum, it's it's a collection of over 7,000 original artifacts of Black memorabilia dating from the transatlantic slave trade era to hip-hop culture.
4: The Mobile Museum, again, as you mentioned, was founded by Dr. Khalid El-Hakim. He was a keynote speaker at the city's Martin Luther King Day celebration last year. So would you touch on the collection of artifacts of Black memorabilia, again, as you mentioned, Dating from the transatlantic slave trade era to hip hop culture, that Dr. El Hakim has amassed. Would you touch on some of those items? After all, his collection spans over seven thousand artifacts. So, would you, you know, give us some examples of of things that folks might expect if they go and visit the museum?
6: The artifacts that you will really see are artifacts from uh, very polarizing artifacts, rather from. Older times where we, uh, our country was not in the state of, I would say, uh, uh, respecting other cultures, respecting other races. Uh, There's some very, I would say, polarizing uh, artifacts there. You find things from the Ku Klux Klan. He has some hoods. He has things like ashtrays with just different uh, slogans and Racial epithets that we're not, um, that we definitely do not use today, and just things that 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 make people think about how our country started in and, and how much farther we have to go. I think because of course you know you would never see any any of these things out on display in people's homes or businesses, but these are very real artifacts that were once part of a popular culture in our country. So. Even though those things, you know, have mostly been been done away with, it's his mobile museum is just a record of of those artifacts that existed, and just giving us a history lesson of pretty much, you know, with how our country started and and how it's progressing, and like I said earlier, how much farther we have to go.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, I was looking at some pictures from the mobile museum's website. And I was a completely flabbergasted that some of those, yeah pieces, you get you call that evidence, which I really liked um, because I've heard about them, and it's one incredibly different thing to see them and be like, this is real
6: exactly. it's It's very jarring because you saw some of those items and you could you could probably say to yourself a thousand times, like, mm-hmm. how was this ever allowed to be created? Mm-hmm. You know, And then furthermore, how could people even take joy? in artifacts such as these and so when i first saw it i was you know just blown away because you just see what was okay you know back then you know what was what was condoned and and then you get to see how how much we still are kind of in those mindsets and i say yes as a as a nation because we realize you know racism and Civil rights issues still exist to this day, and a lot of them stem from those towns where these these artifacts were created. So that's really Mm -hmm. uh, interesting and heartbreaking at the same time.
0: How are they selected and how important is it to you guys that um, they represent reality?
6: Well, they were, the, the artifacts were selected from Dr. L.A. King's many travels a, across the country and, and the world. A lot of people call him to to donate these things. And it's crazy because even a, a couple of days ago, I received an email from someone I had never met with uh, an artifact that she has. And she's wondering if, if it would be uh, any value added to the mobile museum. And so. Now it's like I've become a part of the process in which Dr. El Hakim uses to, you know, collect artifacts. So I imagine just situations like like those and things that he's probably tracked down himself. Things that that you know we may not ever think to look for. I know he he goes to thrift shops. He goes to all types of settings. Uh, maybe swap meets. I imagine just trying to seek whatever he can, wherever he can. And a lot of times, and I can't directly attest to this because I haven't spoken to him about it, but a lot of times he probably sees things that we wouldn't have ordinarily thought, you know, was racist unless it was like very polarizing. He looks at things with a different eye and he can say, oh well, this is from such and such era and it was really meant for this or, or that. And so I imagine that he has uh, many avenues in which Mm -hmm. he collects these artifacts. And I am glad that he does, because if we don't document it, if it's not documented Mm and displayed, a lot of times, you know, we forget. We get comfortable in our, in the way things are now, today. And it's easy to forget the, the oppression or the systemic racism sometimes, you know, especially if you are in those, minority ethnic groups, you know, you never forget, but in our progress, it's easy to put those things aside.
0: And that brings me to my next question kind of perfectly, which is, why is it important for um, this community to have a museum dedicated to Black history?
6: Uh, It's important because, one, uh, and I'm speaking from a personal perspective, Mm -hmm. you know, I feel like we need the, the representation. It's easy to get lost, I would say lost in the sauce. In a predominantly white community, and then uh, about that progress that I spoke of, you know, even though we're in a predominantly white community, and actually one of the most diverse uh, counties in Indiana, we still we still get comfortable sometimes, and with the with the people that you know we have here, and even though they treat us nice, they treat us, you know, like human beings. It's still important for us to to see and acknowledge that those things exist. I think even more importantly, we have to make the connection from those those predated times to now, because we just didn't go from slavery to 2021 and mm-hmm. say, oh, well, now things are better. There's, there's been a natural progression, and um, I think that that's important to display. That's important for people to see where where things came from, how they progressed, in contrasting to how, how things are now.
4: And that that museum will be available to the public on September 11th. So I want to shift gears a little bit here. Would you talk about some of the event sponsors and partners and overall what goes into making this museum available to the public on that date?
6: The way we kind of coordinate our fundraising efforts is we just reach out to to different companies and different businesses. In Bloomington, IU has helped us a, a lot. We are grateful for those those sponsors that we have. We do fundraise. We do a good deal about fundraising year-round so we can bring these opportunities to the community of, of Bloomington, and we were just uh, super excited when, when we thought about this opportunity because, as you all know, on MLK Day this year, we were not able to meet in person, and we held our program virtually for the first time ever, I believe. And so even though Dr. Al-Hakim gave a, a very eloquent keynote address, we were still not able to see a lot of his artifacts. We were, we were not able to see a great deal of them. So I'm very excited because now people get to come and they will get to touch the artifacts, see the artifacts. And, and not only that, they will get to speak with Dr. Al-Hakim in person. And so I think that's great within itself. But I think it's amazing given giving this, this uh, COVID climate that we're in because, man, you know, we could still be in that era and things could still be mm-hmm. locked down how they were. So he's very excited, I will say, because we, he wanted to actually have this uh, presentation in January and we did everything that we could to make it happen. But at the end, you know, it, we were, you know, aired on the side of caution. Mm-hmm. Have it virtually, but he's excited to to get out and speak with people because I kind of look at him as the man of the people. So that will be very awesome, and I hope that you know everyone that uh, can and that is willing to come out and uh, get a chance to see this exhibit and uh, get to meet him.
0: To encourage people who really maybe want to partake in this, but who are maybe deciding on erring on the side of caution again. Do you have any um, safety guidelines that you guys have put in place to protect visitors from COVID this year?
6: Yes, we are only allowing a certain number of people into city hall council chambers at a time. Um, I don't have that exact number, mm-hmm. but we will also mandate our mask wearing. So we have those risk mitigations in place, and, and hopefully everyone will be able, to be able to spend enough time in the, the mobile museum and uh, also get a chance to talk to our presenters.
4: I see, I see. Well, Mr. Sanders, you, you've been a great help to us, and we really appreciate your time mm-hmm. so far today. Now, I wanted to to hand a last question over to you. Is there anything else you would like to touch upon or mention before we, we sign off?
6: I would just like to, once again, invite anyone who is willing to come out on Saturday, September 11th from 9... 9- to 12, 9 a.m. to 12 p.m. to City Hall to take this event in. I would like everyone to come in as objective as possible and just take everything in the way it was meant to. Things may be jarring, and and I just would like everyone to kind of center themselves for what they will see and just think about, um, be very thoughtful of, of the things that they're saying, and, and very thoughtful about how they were even created and how they can learn from whatever they see in this exhibit, because there will be some jarring things, and if you are anxious or have any type of anxiety, the people there are, are very, are very I would say, supportive, especially Dr. El-Hakim, and we will do our best to, to talk to people through what they're seeing, uh, because I would do there also and just take it in together and just exist in that space together.
0: James Sanders, chair of the City of Bloomington, Dr. Martin Luther King, Jr. Commission, thank you for speaking with us.
6: Oh, thank you for having me.
1: You've been listening to the WFHB Local News. Today's headlines were written by Jake Jacobson and Noelle Herhusky-Schneider in partnership with CATS, Community Access Television Services. Our feature was produced by Cade Young and Noel Herhusky-Schneider.
0: Kite Line is produced by Mia Beach. Our theme music is produced by Mark Bingham and the Social Climbers. Engineer and executive producer is Cade Young. For WFHB, I'm Noel Herhusky-Schneider.
1: And I'm Benedict Jones. Thanks for supporting Indiana's only volunteer-powered, listener-supported, independent daily news program. You can hear tonight's full broadcast online at WFHB.org.
0: You can be a part of our award-winning news team. For more information about joining our volunteer team of citizen journalists, email news at wfhb.org.
1: Stay tuned for Planetary Radio, a program dedicated to space exploration, coming up next on WFHB.